If your Bibles turn to Romans chapter 10, we're going to be continuing in our sermon series on the book of Romans, which we have called Rags to Righteous, which is a great title because it kind of sums up in pithy form what Christianity is all about, what the gospel is all about. That God takes us from the rags of sin and by His grace transforms us into those who are righteous in Jesus Christ. From rags to righteous. Maybe you've grown up in church or you've come here week after week and you've heard these truths over and over again. And sometimes these truths can become stale. I'm kind of like, yeah, I get it. I get it. Grace, faith, Jesus, all that stuff. And it no longer evokes the sense of joy or relief or rest that maybe it did at one point in your life. Maybe when you first became a Christian, when the Word of God first opened up your eyes and you had a joy and a love for God, recognizing what He has done for you on your behalf. So it can become stale, and we all, we all feel that. I remember one of my friends, whenever he would uh, hear a strong point or a powerful truth from a preacher, he would interact and he would say out loud, my, 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 my. And I was always refreshed by that because I'm like, man, that's, that's, that should be a response, at least in our minds and our hearts, to have a sense of joy, to rejoice at the good news, at the good word of the gospel. And I hope this morning that I can inject through Romans chapter 10 some life back into these familiar truths and maybe even share these truths for the first time to some of you. So I'm going to read Romans chapter 10 verses 1 through 13, but we're going to focus on 5 through 13. This is Romans chapter 10. He's speaking about Israel. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans chapter 10 is about seeking the right thing in the wrong way. It's about seeking the right thing in the wrong way. A friend of mine once told me, he told me a story recently about a, a man he heard praying over a meal. And the man's prayer went like this. Lord, help us to do good so that one day we can see you in heaven. Lord, help us to do good so that one day at the end of my life, I can see you in heaven. Now, this is a common way of thinking, but it's not a Christian way of thinking. It may use Christian words, Christian lingo. It may sound very spiritual, but it's actually another religion entirely. Now, before we judge him too harshly, we've all said things that maybe we were ignorant of exactly what we were saying. And we also want to recognize that this man has good desires, right? It's good to want to live a moral life. That's a good desire, to be righteous, And it's good to want to be with God. We were created with that desire. The problem is, he's seeking the right thing in the wrong way. It is not good, it is wrong to believe that living a moral life is how we get right with God, is how we can be with him for eternity, is how we can be reconciled to God. That is not Christianity. And this mistake of seeking the right thing in the wrong way, based on our own moral living, is as old as the New Testament. It's as old as the Bible. It's as old as the entire history of humankind. At the end of Romans chapter 9, Paul is dealing with this problem. His contemporaries, his Jewish brethren, the people that he shares a lineage with, the Israelites, they have rejected Christ. They've rejected the gospel. And Paul is trying to explain what the motivation is for why they would reject Christ. What is the problem that is happening with the people whom he loves who have rejected the gospel? And he says this, Israel has pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. As if it were based on works. Now, notice, the pursuit of righteousness and the pursuit of law is not a bad thing. Israel's problem was not the law. Israel's problem was that they failed to succeed in being righteous. They failed to succeed in their pursuit of the law. That was the problem. And just like the man I mentioned earlier, they were seeking the right thing in the wrong way. By works rather than faith by works rather than faith. You can't do enough good things to get right with God. You can't do enough good things to balance the scales, to make up for the things that you've done wrong. So what hope do we have? Well, Romans 10 is the answer. There is another way. The way to be considered righteous before God is the righteousness that is based on faith. The righteousness that is based on faith. We are made righteous considered righteous not based on what we have done 
but based on what Christ has done on our behalf. That's Christianity. That's the gospel. So I want to work through Paul's argument in three points, working through these first 13 verses. First, what God commands, we can't fulfill. What God commands, we can't fulfill. Second, what we can't fulfill, God provides. And finally, what God provides, we receive by faith alone. That's the way this argument works. So let's start with the first one. What God commands, we can't fulfill. What God commands, we can't fulfill. Paul begins by quoting Moses. And before he talks about what the righteousness based on faith is about, he has to explain what is this righteousness based on the law that is the contrast to faith. And he does this by quoting from the book of Leviticus, all of our favorite books of the Bible that we read all the time. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. The person who does the commandments shall live by them. So that's, he's doing an Old Testament Bible study with us. He's going back to Leviticus and going, here's a principle I want to flesh out for you. Now, if you go back to Leviticus 18, what you see are a series of laws meant to keep Israel holy and set apart from the pagan nations around them. God gave the law as a way to protect them from falling after false gods and participating in evil practices. But I want you to keep in mind three things with regard to God's law. Because sometimes you think, well, the Old Testament is the bad law. The law is this bad thing. And then in the New Testament, God becomes nice and just removes the law. But if you carefully read the Old Testament, you realize, no, the law is good. Right? The first thing to remember is that the law is authoritative and must be obeyed. The law comes from the mouth of God. It bears the authority of God, and, and all people are held to account to the moral law of God. The second thing is that the law is gracious. The law is gracious. The law was given to Israel after he had delivered Israel from slavery. In other words, he saves them out of his love for them, and then he goes, now, here's how you live as my redeemed people. Here's how you live as free people. The law is given as a guide to teach God's people how to respond to the kindness of God. And we've all experienced the kindness of God. And God calls us by his law to say, this is how you respond to my kindness. Finally, God's law teaches us that he gives blessings and curses. So part of the law is it gives blessings. There's a condition of obedience for blessings, and then there are curses for disobedience. Now, it's important to recognize this important principle. If you steal, you deserve punishment. You deserve to go to jail, right? That is a just penalty for you. But if you don't steal, you don't deserve a reward. You're just supposed to do that. You ever have a friend who's just like, why would I compliment you for doing what you're supposed to do? And we love those friends. You might be that friend. But there's the idea that we owe God obedience. So he doesn't have to bless us with anything for our obedience. There's no moral wrong being committed if we obey God and he doesn't bless us with rewards. And yet God is so kind 
that he attaches gracious blessings to obedience. That if you obey, not only are you doing what you're supposed to do, but I'm going to fill you with joy. I'm going to bless you to a thousand generations. I'm going to show you the joy of life in communion with God. So God's law must be obeyed. God's law blesses the people who obey it. And it is a proper response to the goodness of God. So why don't we do it? It sounds like a pretty good deal. It's because we're sinners. And the whole Old Testament is chronicling Israel's failure to obey the law of God, to fulfill the conditions for blessing, and instead meriting the curse of God, and their failure to respond rightly to the grace of God. Israel's problem is not the law. Israel's problem is Israel, their sin. Our problem is not God's law. Our problem is our sin. And what you start to see is that the law can only point you to the way of righteousness. It can only light the path before you, but it can't make you walk it. It can't declare you righteous. It can't make you righteous. And when we realize that we can't measure up to God's standard, when we realize we can't walk in righteousness, that we will not succeed in reaching righteousness, what do we do? We redefine his standard. We see the, the complete and absolute commands of God, and we can't live up to it, so we lower his standards. We lower the bar. Sometimes people say, I love it when people set a high bar because it motivates me to be better and to excel. I'm not like that. I love a low bar. I have no problem leaping over that low bar and feeling like I'm Michael Jordan flying through the sky. No problem feeling good about myself for that. And neither did the Pharisees and the Israelites in Paul's day. This is what Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for, for lowering the bar of holiness of God's law. It's not that they loved the law too much, it's that they loved it too little. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says this to the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He says, I'm glad you guys are accurate with your tithing, but you're using that as an excuse to let yourself off the hook from the more important matters in the law of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You're lowering the standard down to the amount of spices you tithe. He says that's hypocrisy. God's law demands far more than that from you. And we do that whenever we compare people's weaknesses to our strengths. You know, you're really good at something, and you're like, why can't these other people get it? And then whenever we have our weaknesses exposed, we're like, well, why doesn't people just cut me a break? We lower our standards to what we're good at, and then we feel offended when people lower their standards to what they're good at and compare us to them. And we don't even live up to our own standards. I mean, that's the irony. You forget about God's law for a second. Even our own standards for moral living, we don't live up to. Francis Schaeffer, a great Christian 
theologian makes this point with his famous tape recorder illustration. And he says this, imagine from the moment you're born, somebody attaches a tape recorder to you that's recording everything you say about other people. Every moral judgment you make against other people for your entire life is recorded on this little cassette. And at the end of your life, you go before God, and God replays that tape for you, and he judges you according to the way you judged other people. How would you do? All those moral judgments, do you stand up to them? We don't even fulfill our own judgments, our own standards. How much less can we fulfill God's standards? And by the way, to disobey God is not just to opt out of God's blessings. It's not as though God promises you you can live a 10 out of 10 life and you're like, I'm good with a 6 out of 10 life. I'll opt out of God's blessings. No, he says if you disobey God's law, you're under a curse. You don't just miss out on the blessing of God. You call upon yourself the curse of God. You say, judge me according to your just law. You bring it upon yourself. So a lot is at stake. This is why in Deuteronomy 27, 26, God says, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So that's the bad news. What God commands, we can't fulfill. But Paul turns his attention to a better way. What God commands, we can't fulfill, but what we can't fulfill, God provides. And this is what Paul turns his attention to. Away from the righteousness that is based on the law and to the righteousness that is based on faith. This is the gospel. And what's interesting is he takes the righteousness that is based on the law and he has an Old Testament citation, but when he goes to the grace of God, he also quotes from the Old Testament. That the Old Testament is filled with the grace of God. And he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 14. And we all as a church in our Bible studies, we did a study on Deuteronomy 30. And when, if you read through it, you're like, man, this actually shows a lot of gospel promises. And Paul zeroes in on this one passage, and he says, the righteousness based on faith does not say, and I'm going to paraphrase here, don't think that being righteous before God, that salvation comes by climbing a ladder to heaven, or diving into the depths of the sea, that it's somewhere hidden in the earth, in a treasure box that you have to dig through miles of dirt to find. No. The righteousness of faith, salvation, is this, that you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You don't have to go on this massive, heroic quest for salvation. In the gospel, salvation comes to you. The Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, comes to you in the incarnation. It comes to you in the proclamation, the word of faith that is the gospel that the apostles are proclaiming. But when you read this, it's kind of strange. You're like, what's going on with Paul's Bible study method here? It's almost like if you looked at his Deuteronomy scroll, you would see in parentheses, and he writes in parentheses, this is to bring Christ down, or this is to raise Christ up. And you're like, Paul, are you reading Jesus back into this text? 
Because the original text doesn't mention Jesus, it doesn't mention gospel, it doesn't mention faith, any of this stuff. What are you doing, Paul? Are you, are you twisting the Old Testament to fit your agenda? Well, no. Paul is doing something that many Jewish interpreters of his day did, and many of the apostles did. What he is doing is he's tracing the relationship of an oak seed to an oak tree. He's tracing the relationship from an oak seed to an oak tree. Think about this. An oak seed has all the genetic material, all the stuff of an oak tree. But it's in an immature form. It's all contained there, but it's in a different immature form. And when it blossoms and becomes an oak tree, all of the stuff that was latent, that was in the oak seed, now comes to full bloom, now comes to full maturity. All the stuff was there, but now it's given full expression. And what Paul is doing when he reads Deuteronomy is he's saying the Old Testament is the oak seed. All of the stuff of the gospel is there. But now in Christ, that oak seed has blossomed into a tree. And we see the fullness of everything that the Old Testament pointed to. The fullness that we see in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul means when he says Christ is the end of the law. End doesn't mean the law is done or over with, or removed. It means it's been fulfilled. The end of an oak seed is a tree, and the end of the law finds its culmination in Christ. Christ is the perfect sacrifice that all the sacrifices pointed to. He's the great high priest that all the high priests pointed to. He's the righteous king that all the kings pointed to. He's the indestructible temple that the temple pointed toward. In Deuteronomy 30, it's talking about how the Word of God has come near to God's people. When you find yourself in exile, when you fail to do Leviticus 18 and you get kicked out of the land, remember my Word and turn back to me. And Paul's saying, just as the Word came close to Israel, now the living Word, Jesus Christ, has come close to you to confess that He is Lord, that God has brought Himself near to you. And Paul keys in on this. Christ fulfilled the commandments of God, the conditions of God, to bring everlasting blessing to those who are in him. And he has borne the curse of the law on him. This is why Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ in his death redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He becomes the curse. He bears the curses of God that the law brings upon sinners. That's the ground of our salvation. Now, good works are the result, not the ground of our salvation. That's a very important distinction. They're the result. They organically flow out of our salvation, but they're not what saves us. They're not the ground of our salvation. And to put it in modern terms, if we try to work our way to heaven, what does Paul say? It's like dragging Christ down from his resurrection. It's denying the resurrection. And if we try to make up for our own sins by our good works, we're denying his death. We're bringing him up from the dead. We're canceling the gospel if we rely on works. It's a classic phrase I used to hear, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. There's nothing in addition to the work of Christ that we contribute to our salvation. And it's not as though God wakes up one day and decides, you know, I'm just going to forget about sin. New rules, no law. No. 
the cross shows the mercy and the judgment of God. It shows the justice of God in pouring out the curse upon the Son, but also shows the mercy of God that He does not pour it out on us, that the Son willingly offers Himself to absorb that judgment so that we don't have to. It's the mercy and the justice of God together in the cross and the resurrection. But there's a condition. We must confess Him as Lord to receive this salvation. Not confess Christ as a good teacher with some nice principles. Not to confess a proposition that Jesus died for you and you check the box. But you confess Him as Lord. No longer is it about your works. Your life doesn't belong to yourself anymore. You're no longer a slave to sin. He's no longer your master, but you are a slave of Christ. He is your new master. He sets the agenda for your life. It is the whole resting of your entire self upon the mercy and grace of God. Everything, everything on the shoulders of Christ because it's Christ who saves you. What we can't fulfill, God provides. But how how do we get this good gift? And this is the final point. What God provides, we receive by faith alone. What God provides, we receive by faith alone. Paul talks about believing with your heart and confessing with your mouth. What does it mean to believe? What does it mean for us to believe? Sometimes we can focus on the quality of our faith, that that becomes what we're fixated on. And, and we do that all the time, right? You're watching a football game, team's losing, and you believe they can make a comeback. Or things are out of your control, but you just believe, you have faith that they will work out the way you want it to. And it's this idea that the quality of our faith, the strength of our faith, is what makes something happen. And if it doesn't turn our way, if things don't work out the way we want, or if our team doesn't win, we think we didn't believe enough. Something was lacking in our faith. It is a fixation on the quality of our faith. It's this sort of force or energy that makes things happen. But that's not, that's not the faith of Christianity. A Christian's faith is not about the quality, but the object. Our faith is not based on the quality of our faith, but the object of our faith. Faith is what grabs us, it's what grabs onto Christ who saves us. So your faith doesn't make Jesus trustworthy. You're not sitting there trying to, you know, really, really trust Jesus so that he'll be trustworthy. But faith is a response to the eternal, unchanging trustworthiness and goodness of God. It is because Christ is unchanging that we can trust him. And our faith is fluctuating all the time, but the object of our faith never fluctuates. That's the ground of a Christian's assurance. That's why we got to come to church every week, because we forget how faithful God is. And we take the Lord's Supper because we forget how unchanging He is and how merciful He is, and we need to be reminded over and over again. It's the object of our faith. Faith looks away from self and toward God. And belief, Paul says, comes from the heart as expressed by the mouth. The heart is the center of our deepest loyalties, our deepest allegiances. And so to confess with your mouth is to express the deepest trust 
in your heart. I trust Christ, not myself. This is why Paul returns to his quotation of Isaiah 28.16. He says this earlier at the end of chapter 9, and he quotes the second half again in chapter 10. He says this, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. If you flip back to Isaiah 28, Isaiah is talking to King Hezekiah, and he's advising him on a matter of national security. The nation of Assyria, this massive superpower, is knocking on Jerusalem's door. And Hezekiah is freaking out. And he's like, well, we got to you know, get our army together, and we, oh, we got an alliance with Egypt. We'll call Egypt. Egypt will help us. And Isaiah goes, no, don't rely on your armies. Don't rely on Egypt. The Lord has laid a stone. The stone is the Lord himself. The Lord is in your midst. Trust him. Don't trust in your armies, in your money, in your strength. If you do that, you're going to die. You're going to lose. If you trust the Lord, you will be saved. You will have victory. And Hezekiah trusts and they overcome the Assyrians. But Paul is quoting that and saying, modern day Israel, or at least Israel in his day, has rejected Christ the stone. They have chosen to trust in themselves. And it's interesting that in the Old Testament, the stone is God, and Paul says Christ is the stone, and if you connect them together, what's he saying? That Christ is God. Christ is the one true God. And because he's the one true God, he will never let you down. He'll never put you to shame. How many, how many times have you been let down by people, by circumstances, by things, disappointed, betrayed even? Paul says Christ is not like that never put you to shame. One of the great uh, insights of Martin Luther, the, the Protestant reformer, was he realized that he could never confess enough sin. He was kind of neurotic in that way. He could never pray enough. He could never show enough charity. He could never feel guilty enough. You ever feel that way? can never feel guilty enough. In other words, he can never feel spiritual enough for God. Everything he did, he could have always done better with more fervor earlier in the day. And that's what made him realize, wait a minute, I can't be the solution. All my efforts are going to put me to shame. And that's where he realized my trust has to be in the goodness of God, in what he has done for me. Call on the name of the Lord. God's name is his character. It's not some magic spell. It is a cry to God, Lord, save me not because I'm good, but because you're good, because you're merciful and abounding in steadfast love and slow to anger, showing mercy to a thousand generations. That's who you are. So God, show mercy to me. Be for me who you say you are. That's what the book of Psalms is about. A bunch of prayers of people saying, God, you say you're this. Be that for me. Not abstract me. Not abstract Christian person. Me. In my life. With my sin. And my struggles. And my trials. Be who you say you are to me. Cling to the Lord. Call on him. Because he doesn't lie to us. 
He's telling the truth when he says that he is good and right and patient and loving. Why do we virtue signal? Why do we get so anxious about whether people think we're sensitive enough or courageous enough? Why are we so self-conscious about how successful we look or how successful our kids look? Why do we really post those things on Instagram? Because we want to be justified. We want somebody, somewhere, to just say, you're okay. You did it. You're absolved. You're okay. And what's the reality? The verdict never comes in. You're never nuanced enough. You never care about the things you should care about enough. You're never faithful enough. You're never Christian enough. Never healthy enough. All these things, enough, enough, enough. That is righteousness based on the law, and it is bondage. And you know that feeling. Many of you have come in here with that feeling. What's the good news? In the gospel, we're free. Christ has freed us from the condemnation of the law. The verdict is in, justified in Christ, righteous in Christ. It's over. The quest is over, justified. And this is both vertical and horizontal implications. Remember, Paul is not writing to a church of nerdy seminary students. He's writing to normal, ordinary people who are Jews and Gentiles, two different ethnic groups in the same church, smashed together. And the Jewish Christians are going, who are these pagans? Weren't you at, like, the temple of Zeus or Artemis last week, sacrificing to gods, and now you're in my small group? And the Gentiles are like, well, wait a minute, you guys are denying the Messiah. So let's not get so proud. And how does Paul ease this tension? He goes, guys, listen. What does he say in verse 12? For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. You're still a Jew. You're still a Greek. You're still a Gentile. But there's something deeper than that. You're in Christ. You're justified. The same Lord is Lord of all. The God of Israel is is the God of the Gentiles. And he blesses all who call on him. So we're not to view ourselves through the lens of our sins or of our backgrounds, but through the lens of Christ. And what happens? What happens when that captivates a church? Paul tells us, he says, if, if you read Romans and you get it, and that theology sinks in, here's what's going to happen. Your love's going to be genuine. You're going to abhor what is evil. You're going to hold fast to what is good. You're going to love one another with brotherly affection. You're going to outdo one another in showing honor. You're not going to be slothful in zeal. You're going to be fervent in spirit. You're going to rejoice in hope. You're going to be patient in tribulation. You're going to be constant in prayer. You're going to contribute to the needs of the saints and show hospitality. You're going to bless those who persecute you. You're going to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You're going to live in harmony with one another. You're not going to be haughty and too good for other people. You're going to associate with the lowliest of people. You're not going to repay evil for evil. You're going to live as possible peaceably with all. You're never going to avenge yourself. If your enemy is hungry, you're going to feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, you're going to give him something to drink. You're not going to overcome evil with evil, but you're going to overcome evil with good. If this sinks in, it is this explosive power of the Holy Spirit in the church of love, of truth. You're going to call sin, sin. 
You're going to believe that the gospel deals with those actual, real sins. This is why Paul quotes Joel 2.32. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is a prophecy in Joel's time of a future day when the Spirit will be poured out and this body of Jews and Gentiles will be forged. And that body is the church. So you're not just saved individually to God. You are now part of a historical reality that God is making and knitting a people together in space and time called the church of the living God. That's a group identity. That is the truest thing about you. You are in Christ. You are part of God's church, his body. So what path are you on? Are you pursuing the righteousness that is based on the law? Do you think that you're going to cut it, that the scales will balance when you meet the Lord? You won't. You won't. You won't make it. But here's the good news. Christ died and rose so that you can rest. You can rest. That's what faith should feel like, rest. You don't have to climb to heaven. You don't have to plunge into the sea. What you do is you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died and rose again for you. Our prayer is not, oh God, help us to do good so one day we might be able to see you. Our prayer is the prayer of the tax collector in Luke 18, 13. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And if you say that to the Lord, he'll say, of course. That's what I'm like. And he will not put you to shame. Because what God commands, we can't fulfill. What we can't fulfill, God provides. And what God provides, we receive by faith alone. That's the gospel. That's the good news. My, my, my. Let's pray together.